Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. All right, it is 6 o'clock, so we are going to start. I'm sure some folks will trickle in, but we've got to get going so we can make sure we're out on time. A couple things up front here I want to remind you of that are coming up. Um, at this same time in fall, so in three weeks, I think, uh, Wednesday the 23rd, we're going to start a new Wednesday night series called The Person and Work of Christ. And so this should take us through the, f- the whole fall semester, and we're going to really unpack what is called Christology, or the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of Jesus, so um, all the biggies like his incarnation, the virgin birth, his sinless life, death, burial, resurrection, all of that stuff we're going to cover that fall semester all the way through December. Coming up here, not this Sunday, but the next, we have a combined Sunday school breakfast. Um, I know it has been put out there that leaders are bringing food. Um, I would just say if you want to bring something, bring something. Everybody, it's going to be everyone together down here at 9 a.m., that Sunday, so it's going to be everyone, youth, children, adults, everybody down here Sunday, August 13th at 9 a.m., and the reason we're doing this is not, you know, we're going to have fellowship, and I'm going to talk and give us a little a pep rally for the beginning of the year, but it's also um, most of our Sunday school classes will sort of still be in disarray between what we're doing on the 6th, getting ready for the 20th, and so we want to have a combined Sunday school breakfast just to leave all those places empty while the teachers are still working on them that week. Also coming up, um, on the 13th and then the 20th and 23rd, you see all the kickoff stuff coming up. We've been doing a picnic at McDade Park the last couple years. We're going to do that again. I think it's at 5.30. That's wrong. Uh, kickoff picnic Sunday, uh, August 13th at 5.30. You can come at 5. That'll be fine. You will receive assignments for food in your Sunday school class for the picnic. Uh, Sunday school classes begin, they, I know they're, they're still going, but in their new locations, some new classes, that will all begin on Sunday, August 20th. Uh, small groups begin Sunday night, August 20th, and then all of our Wednesday activities resume on the 23rd. And then next week, uh, at this same time, will be both of our back-to-school parties for the kids that will be here at church, and for the youth, they will be meeting here and going to the Weatherfords or just meeting at the Weatherfords at 6 p.m. for their back-to-school pool party. That's next week. All right, let's begin tonight, and while I get started, why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of Second Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Let's do just a little bit of refreshing on the, the introduction here, asking what's the big deal. Sometimes you get in these conversations with folks, and if you or someone else would, would, would volunteer to someone, I think that you may be taking that verse out of context. For some reason, it, it becomes sort of offensive to someone. And it's understandable why, because someone might have grown up thinking a verse means something, or maybe a beloved Sunday school teacher or a parent or grandparent has told you, you know, this is what that verse teaches, and maybe that's not true. 
nothing against our Sunday school teachers or parents or grandparents that may have said something different, and we all have some disagreements on some issues in Scripture, but we do have to understand it is a big deal because the meaning of the text is the text. Remember that. The meaning of the text is the text. And it's not demeaning someone or insulting someone to suggest maybe you want to take a a deeper look at that in context because what we want people to do is not just hear the words of Scripture, but we want them to hear the message of the Scripture. And so we're not going to do that unless we understand it rightly. The meaning of the text is the text. And remember that twisting Scripture is ultimately uh, a tool of the devil uh, that he uses to, to dupe people and to deceive people. So these are big deals. It's a big deal uh, interpreting Scripture, obviously understanding it and applying it, and we want to do that rightly because if we're wrongly applying Scripture, then uh, we fall in danger of false teaching and we fall into danger of, of false living and understanding sin and righteousness wrong. So we want to understand the Scriptures to understand better how to live as Christians. So I've been giving us these simple sort of starting places, where to start. And there's certainly much more you can do than these categories, but this is what we've been going through on a basic level as we understand these passages we've been looking at. Number one, who's the author? So who wrote the passage? Number two, who were the original hearers? What we call the audience. Uh, All your Bible commentaries, uh, study Bibles, you know, they'll start the beginning of a book with this kind of information. Who wrote it? And to whom were they writing? And for what reason? Uh, Genre, what type of literature is it? Remember, poetry and wisdom, history, narrative, gospel, apocalyptic, they all have sort of different criteria for how to interpret and understand and apply. You don't understand and apply the Psalms in the same way that you apply a history portion from Exodus or a portion of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You also want to understand the setting, what is going on at the time of the writing. Uh, both of the person writing the actual book and what is going on in the actual setting of the book. So if it's history and they're recounting something that has already passed, maybe in the long past, you want to understand, number one, where is that author writing and to whom they're writing and what was the original setting of the text and the events that are going on. We'll talk about that a little tonight with Second Chronicles. Number five, what are the themes? What are the main themes in the book that you're looking at in the passage, the chapter, uh, the book, the section of Scripture. What are the big themes? And then we can move into what we call interpretation. And interpretation must come before we do application. We want to understand what did the text mean then. When Jesus said those words to that audience, why did he say that? What did it mean to them? When Moses wrote these words to the people of Israel, why did he write them? What did it mean to them then? And all, all likewise throughout the rest of Scripture. Then we can ask, what can we take away? So many people, I think, approach the Bible and skip number six altogether and go right to number seven. And so Bible studies in Sunday schools devolve into, what does this verse mean to me? What does this verse mean to you? Without first asking, what does the verse actually mean? There's one interpretation. There's one meaning. It can be applied in many different ways but there's only one meaning. So it matters very little what it means to you or to me. It matters what it meant, and then we understand what can we do with it, okay? So that's where we need to start, interpretation and then application. Ask first, what does this passage or verse mean? Then ask, what can we take away from this passage? 
All right, so we've gone through, let's see, two, five, eight. I think we've gone through eight sections of Scripture, eight verses, and tonight we're going to do two more and have a little conclusion time at the end. Uh, so these are just a few. There's a whole list. You can do a nice Google search on verses often taken out of context, and you can find lots. So we've covered uh, eight, right? Did I say eight? Eight, five, eight, whatever. We've covered that many, and <laughs> there's many, many more. So what I hope that I've given you and Jarrett on the week that he taught are some kind of foundational principles for understanding things in context and then interpreting rightly and applying rightly. Let's look at Second Chronicles for our first passage tonight. Chapter 7, verse 14. Did anybody know this passage before even looking at it in their scripture? You knew that reference. If I were to start it, you would know it, right? If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. All right, so our first question that I've been asking us every week that we've been doing this is, how is this verse often used? I think you have a pretty good example there on your handout of how this verse is often used around election time or national days of prayer uh, or times of national significance when we, we need to pray and then churches and pastors and uh, political leaders who want to score points with Christians will use this verse in a political context, uh, applying it maybe directly to America or whatever nation a person happens to be in, maybe thinking this applies to uh, the United Kingdom or, or Canada or whatever the nation is for which the person is praying. The Bible says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, I will heal their land. Now, I'm sure there are other ways that this passage is used, but that's the first one that comes to mind and all the political and national things that come to mind when we say that. Let's begin to put it together and we'll see how maybe we can apply it in that way, how the interpretation might take us somewhere else. The author of Second Chronicles is technically unknown, though many scholars believe it to be Ezra of Ezra-Nehemiah, who may have also chronicled Israel's history in the book of the Kings, which is one book in the Hebrew Bible, and the book of the Chronicles, which is one book in the Hebrew Bible. So in our Bibles, we know them as Ezra and Nehemiah, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Some scholars believe Ezra and Nehemiah were the two primary contributors to all those historical books, but technically it is unknown and the book itself remains anonymous. The audience is just generally the people of Israel. So at the time of uh, writing the people of Israel, later the people of Judah and the divided kingdom, uh, that is the, the audience that we're going to see today in the passage, and we'll see how that devolved over time, too. The genre is history. You could say historical narrative. In other words, it's, it's a story from Israel's past, namely uh, Solomon and the dedication of the temple. We'll talk about that a little bit in a moment, too. The setting of this particular text uh, we know the author, maybe it's Ezra, maybe it's not, whoever it is, seems to be what we would call a priestly source rather than a kingly or royal source or, or prophetic source. It seems to be someone, uh, scholars say, with access to the temple records, uh, some of the historical archives there in the temple at that time, uh, by the time of the writing, that is, sometime between 539 and 332 B.C. And so that would have been well after uh, the conquest of both Israel and Judah 
and um, maybe even after the entire return back to the land. The main story of Kings and Chronicles, as we went through Kings last fall semester, I think, together, First and Second Kings, the main story behind both of these sets of books is pretty much the same. It is the history of the rulers of Israel, and then in the divided kingdom, the rulers of Israel in the north, and Judah, the southern kingdom. And so it will take us from the division of the kingdom. We know the first king was Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then by the end of Solomon's reign, the year 930 BC, the kingdom is divided. So it takes us from the division of the kingdom and from those first kings all the way through the fall of both kingdoms, Israel that falls in the year 720 BC, and Judah that falls in the year 587 BC. And remember, that's BC, so we're counting down. So the fall of Judah is a good 200 years before the fall, sorry, the fall of Israel is a good 200 years before the fall of Judah. Now the setting for this specific text today is the dedication of the temple by Solomon. And so if you'll begin reading with me in 2 Chronicles chapter uh, 7, let's begin in, in verse 4. The king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. The priests stood at their post, the Levites also, with the instruments for music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry, opposite them the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. And Solomon consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offering and the grain offering and the fat. At that time Solomon held the feast for seven days and all Israel with him, and a very great assembly from Lehoamath to the brook of Leboamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they all kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. On the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people away to their homes, joyful and glad of heart, for the prosperity that the Lord had granted to David and to Solomon and to Israel, his people. Okay, so that's the setting. Solomon has completed the temple. We're in the middle of the ceremony of that dedication, and the instrumentalists have played Psalms of David, and the singers have sung, and the instrumentalists have played, and everyone's joyful, and this is sort of the peak of the kingdom of Israel before the divided kingdom, the completion of the temple, the glory of the Lord revealed there. And so everybody goes home happy, rejoicing in the prosperity of Israel and the completion of the temple. But what follows is a blessing by the Lord, but also a warning by the Lord. Look beginning in chapter 7, verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now if you look at verses 15 through verse 18, you'll see blessing. My eyes will be open, my ears attentive. 
I have chosen this house. Walk before me as David your father did. Verse 18, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. But now look at verse 19. This is where we begin the warnings. But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and commandments, verse 20, I will pluck you up from the land I have given you. And way down in verse 22, then they will say, because they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who brought them out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, he has brought all this disaster on them. So on one hand, we have blessing. If you continue to obey and walk in the footsteps of your father, David, you will do well. I will bless you. I will prosper you. But on the other hand, if you turn away from me, you will receive curse, you will receive wrath, you will receive condemnation, you will receive judgment, so that all the other nations will look at you and they'll know exactly why this happened to you. All right, And this is pretty common in ancient Near Eastern literature to have this agreement with the royalty or a deity where a treaty is issued and there's blessings for obedience or following the treaty and then there's curses for breaking your covenant or breaking the treaty. And so God speaks to the people in this way, a way they would understand, if you do this, blessing will come. If you do this, curses will come. Okay, And that's important to keep in mind here with the things we've been looking at. As we saw there at the end of that first portion in verse 18, the covenant I made with David your father saying, you shall not lack a man to rule Israel. That is the center of all of the book of Kings, all of the book of the Chronicles. If you remember back when we did our study in First and Second Kings uh, down here last fall, I kept coming back to that. That was the center of the entire historical narrative. The author kept wanting us to remember the promise that God had made to David. I'm not going to turn there, but you have the scriptural reference. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Remember that. That's a, a key passage in the whole Old Testament, the whole Bible. Because it's there that God makes the promise to David to put one of his descendants on his throne forever. Now David understands that this goes way beyond him. He understands it's way beyond, beyond his comprehension as a human being. He understands this is far beyond his, his way of understanding things. And so it is, because we know this is not fulfilled until the person and work of Jesus Christ. But here is the center of Old Testament history. Here's the center of the kings, the center of the chronicles. And we have to keep in mind here, even in verse 18, it's the center of our theme tonight as well. Twice we see it listed other than what we see here in chapter 7, um, sorry, chapter, yeah, chapter 7, it's listed in 1 Chronicles 17, and it's listed, listed again in 2 Chronicles 13. The author continually reminding us of the promise God made to David to put one of his descendants on his throne forever. So here in the middle of this blessing, as Solomon completes the house of the Lord, the temple is consecrated, the people are rejoicing, what does the author do except remind us of the promises that God has made, the blessings that come from obedience in that covenant, and the curses that will come by turning away from that covenant? Those are the key themes in all of this. And of course, those curses remind us of what we continually saw in First and Second Kings. If you were here, you remember how every week was a pretty downer kind of story, wasn't it? Through the kings of Israel, the kings of Judah, maybe one or two good kings. No earthly king could be what God had promised to David. I will put one of your sons on your throne, and he will reign forever. Do you remember the two adjectives it used there? In righteousness 
and justice. And every time we turn the page in First and Second Kings, and every time you turn the page in First and Second Chronicles, you see earthly king after earthly king after earthly king who was neither righteous nor just. Or maybe they were righteous, but they weren't just, or they were just and not righteous, but none perfectly all the time for their entire lives, and certainly not forever. Remember the drumbeat in the kings, and also here in Chronicles, they reigned for such and such years, and they died. And they reigned for such and such years, and they died. And so the author wants you to remember this promise God made to David, a king to reign forever, justice and righteousness. And he also wants you to see that every time we turn to these human kings, it's not going to happen. Hence the need for the curses. If you as a people and as a king turn away from my statutes and my rules, curses will come upon you. I will take you up from the land, I will destroy this temple, and I will destroy you as a people. But even throughout the cursing, we see small reminders of God's faithfulness throughout the whole thing. And that's what we see here in verse 14. We have a promise of blessing, this time of prosperity, the peak of the kingdom of Israel, the peak of the Davidic and the Solomonic, that's a fancy word, isn't it? Reigns, the, the, the completion of the temple, the people go home rejoicing in their prosperity and their security. But there's also this foreshadowing of things to come, bad things and the curses. But there in the middle is this promise. Even when the judgments come, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. The blessing, the curse, obedience, disobedience, God's faithfulness in the midst of it all. So now let's begin this work then of interpreting this passage. Number one, we must understand that God is speaking specifically to Israel. This is before the divided kingdom when this actual event took place. It's written long after that, but the, before the division of the kingdom is when this event took place. And God is speaking specifically to his national people, Israel, under the terms of the old covenant, the land, the temple, the priests, the kings, the prophets, all of that. And his promise to them his people, national Israel, old covenant Israel, is if judgment comes, if they will humble themselves and pray and seek God and repent, those are the conditions, he will heal them. You're my people, God to national Israel, if you will turn to me, repent and humble yourselves, I will give you healing. God promises to heal. In fact, if you look at Jeremiah 25.5 and Jeremiah 26.3, you can turn to those later, you'll hear very similar sounding passages. And Jeremiah is writing before and right during the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he still reminds them in the midst of it all, still, Judah, if you'll turn back to God and repent and humble yourselves before him, he will not cast you off forever, but he will heal you. So it's important to remember as we interpret this passage that this is a particular promise for a particular people. A particular promise from God to his national 
covenant people, the nation of Israel. So, it is not and cannot be used as a direct promise for other nations. All of this is within the sphere of God's particular covenant with Israel. That's why we keep talking about David. That's why we keep talking about the Davidic line and the Davidic kings and the temple and the sacrifices and the priesthood. The author is rooting us there in those forms and those types and those shadows of the nation of Israel. God speaking to his people then. This is not a promise to the nation of Egypt. This is not a promise uh, to the Moabites or the Philistines or anyone else that would have surrounded Israel. It's not a promise to them. It is a promise to Israel. When judgment comes, if you will repent and turn to me, I will heal you. And he uses that visual of healing their land. So if we could sum this up, this was God's promise to his people that if they fell away and turned from him, he would judge them, but would also restore them if they repented. So the question is, an application then, what is here for us? If this is not about the United States of America, then what can we look at this and take away from it? If this isn't something we can quote at prayer breakfast for the nation and whatever, how, how can we apply this? What is, what is here for us to glean? Well, first, that is the point. We should not equivocate. We cannot equivocate. Okay? It, it gets dicey when we start doing this. And we interpret God's message to my people as somehow a unilateral message to the United States. Because then we get to questioning, well, if we, if we think in America that we are God's people, just the same as Israel was God's people, our nation is his people just like they were, then what do you do with other nations? Why isn't Canada God's people? Why isn't the United Kingdom or Australia or Japan or Korea or wherever? Why aren't they God's people? Do they interpret this verse the same way as we do? And I don't think Japan has a national day of prayer. I'm sure Christians devote time to prayer in Japan. I don't know that they put the Japanese flag up beside this verse and they say, if my people, but this is a uniquely American interpretation. To read a verse like this and read the United States of America right into the interpretation as if this was God's promise to us. Israel does not equal the United States of America. The United States of America does not equal Israel. In fact, if we're looking for anywhere that Israel points us, Israel points us to the church. The church, this is God's new covenant people. The church is God's new covenant people. Not the United States or any other earthly nation or earthly kingdom or earthly ruler or political party. The church is the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, Israel. As the church, and we're going to look through these, we have the promises. The promises that belong to Israel are the promises that belong to us. Uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 1, and we're just going to do a little survey very quickly on some of these promises. Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. 
Uh, This is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary about the birth of Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. There's, There's your king. There is the foretold Davidic king. Jesus Christ will receive the throne of his father David. And he will reign over it, verse 33, over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Okay, so the church knows the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the son of David. He is the one that was about the whole time. He will reign forever, and he will reign in perfect justice and perfect righteousness forever. Um, turn to the book of First Peter. This might be the most explicit of these promises in the New Testament. You can imagine Peter, a Jew, even in the, as other Jews might have heard Peter's words and how shocking this might have been for them. First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 5 to begin with. First Peter 2 verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter, speaking to the church, speaking to believers, what does he call us? Living stones in a house. What is the house of God in the Old Covenant? The temple. And he says, here you, the church, are living stones in the new temple for God. And what is in the temple except the priesthood and sacrifices? And who does he say this is? You are the priesthood. You are the ones offering sacrifices through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look down at verse 9 directly quoting from the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, Peter says to the church, not to Israel, not to Jews, but to the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You, believers, are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You, church, are the people of God. Uh, Look over at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, verses 21 through 22. Ephesians 2, verse 21, speaking again to the church about this reconciliation we have in Christ, in whom Jesus, the whole structure being joined together, grows up into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Colossians 2.17, just a few books over from Ephesians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 17. Um, This is Paul talking about those Old Testament pictures. So the Old Testament dietary restrictions, the temple, the law, all of those pictures from the Old Covenant. Listen to how Paul talks about them in Colossians 2.17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Remember, I think, when I, when I, you don't remember, I remember, when I preached through Colossians, I think it was my first, like, biblical, like, series once I got here um, in the winter of 2021, and I talked about how um, someone would be standing in the doorway, and a light would be shining behind them, perhaps, and, and that their shadow would be cast into a darkened room. We don't see the shadow and think that that's the actual person, 
but it tells us that the person is coming. The substance of that person is the actual human being of which the shadow is just a sort of reflection from the light. We don't rejoice in the shadow, we rejoice in the person. In the same way, Paul says these old covenant pictures, whether it's the Ten Commandments or the temple or the land or the nation or whatever it is, the dietary laws, whatever it is that was shadowed in the Old Testament, the substance of it belongs to Jesus. And the substance of it has already walked through the door and we've seen him face to face. 1 Corinthians 1.20, you don't have to turn there. You should know this one by heart by now. I quote it all the time. All the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So we are the people of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we, the people of God, have all of the promises of God. And so when we look back to the old covenant and we see that promises God made to his people then, we know that the substance of those promises are ours. And we know that the substance of those promises, foreshadowed then, belong to us through Jesus Christ. And so while we would look at chapter 7, verse 14 of Second Chronicles and say, if my people who are called by my name will call out to me, I'll heal their land, is a promise for Israel, we don't, we don't look at that and say, that's for the United States. But we can look at it and say, that promise is for us, the church. We are the people of God. And we know that those promises ultimately point beyond here and now. In other words, they point beyond some earthly land or a physical nation or an earthly kingdom. Those promises point us to Jesus and they point us to eternity. So how do we look at this then well number one we have a universal invitation the universal invitation still applies if you will humble yourself pray and seek God and repent of your sin then there's a universal promise he will hear you he will forgive you and he will heal you. So while we don't necessarily take that verse and slap it onto you know, an American flag somewhere, we shouldn't, we can see this as a universal invitation to the gospel. If you will repent of your sins and turn to Jesus, turn to God in prayer and humility, he will save you. He will heal you. We have forgiveness as the people of God. We have forgiveness and restoration as the people of God through faith in Jesus Christ. These promises are for the people of God, the church, not earthly nations or political ideologies. As well-intentioned as the prayer breakfasts are <laughs> and as well-intentioned as we are when we want to offer up prayers for our nation, we can do that without taking this verse and putting it somewhere where it doesn't belong. We, we, don't, have, we don't have to have a Bible verse to tell us to pray for our nation. Okay? We pray for all people, the Bible says, lifting up holy hands, praying for your leaders and your rulers, those in governing authority. It's a, it's a, it's a, not a no-brainer to pray for your nation. We don't have to go find biblical warrant by taking a verse out of context and saying, well, let's pray for America. We should be praying for our nation. 
But this specific verse is about the people of God and the forgiveness they have through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a promise that if you're a Christian, you know the fullness of by faith in Christ. Let's look at John 14 uh, for our last one tonight and for the whole series. John 14, I think it's the only one that's two verses. Maybe there was another. This one is two verses. Gospel of John starting in verse 13. John 14, 13. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So I don't have to get you to think too hard about how these verses are often used, do I? You can turn on so-called Christian television and most Christian radio, sorry to say it, most Christian radio, uh, most contemporary Christian music, and, and this is the theme. Whatever I need, whatever I want, uh, wherever I feel is lacking in my life or my feelings or my physical needs or money or whatever it is, if I just claim it in Jesus' name, well, you got to use the formula, right? In Jesus' name, then I will have it. Uh, you hear word of faith teachers, some of which are pictured there in your handout, uh, word of faith teachers that say that God can't do anything without you speaking it into existence with your faith. And so teachers like Joel Osteen and Joyce Meyer and, and the like will say the only reason you're p poor is because you keep saying you're poor. And if you would just look at your wallet and say you're so full, or look at your checking account and say you're, you're overflowing, if you would just start speaking these things in faith over yourself, you would see a change. And it's this kind of power of positive thinking, isn't it? It's just new age thought put into Christian lingo and, and repackaged for Christians who unknowingly buy into it because it's on Christian television, after all. It's on Christian radio, after all. It's in the Christian bookstore, after all. Um, but it is not biblical and it is not what jesus means here when he says if you ask anything in my name i will do it well let's talk about the basics here the author is john the apostle but uh, technically here in this section it is jesus speaking so it's john recording the words of jesus likewise the audience um, for john's gospel would have been jews and gentiles believers and unbelievers just a historical recounting of the life of jesus but in this specific setting it is Jesus speaking to his disciples. That's important, his disciples. And the genre is gospel. It's history, it's narrative. Uh, in this case, it's a recording of the teaching of Jesus. So let's get a little further into uh, sort of the setting of all this. I told you it was John the Apostle writing somewhere between the years 70 and 100 A.D. That's important because persecution had already started for the early church. Uh, certainly by the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s and uh, Emperor Nero in 63, uh, intense persecution of Christians had begun. In fact, John the Apostle writes Revelation from a place of persecution exiled on the Isle of Patmos, the same John. And so uh, that is the setting for John's writing. And he writes his gospel. He says so in, verse, in chapter 20, verse 31. You know this. I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ. The purpose that John writes is that, that you may know in reading this account 
that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is who he says he is. That's why John writes. It's why he records what he records there in chapter 14. So there in chapter 14, specifically though in the story, the setting is what we know as the upper room discourse. These are Jesus' final moments, Jesus' final words with his disciples. So there in the upper room, putting all the gospel accounts together, we have the Last Supper. We have the washing of the disciples' feet. We know that Jesus is about to go to Gethsemane where he will pray, where he will be arrested. He'll be tried, ultimately crucified. So these final uh, middle chapters of John, John 14, 15, 16, into chapter 17 are what we call the upper room discourse where Jesus takes a long time. You think about the length of John's gospel and we have three whole chapters that are in the same setting within the same amount of hours. It was important to John to record this for us, these, these final words and final moments with Jesus. And that's important for understanding then what he's saying in chapter 14. This whole setting is important. Some of the main themes that we're looking at in the upper room discourse are the command. That's beautiful. I like that background music. Make it a Hammond organ and I'll start preaching. Uh, Jesus gives his disciples the new commandment, chapter 13. Remember this from Maundy Thursday, Mandatum Thursday, the command Thursday. A new command I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you so you also ought to love one another. That's how it begins, this command. As I'm leaving, remember, you are to love one another. There's also comfort. As Jesus is about to go, he knows their hearts are troubled. And regardless of Sean Hannity's um, appropriation of these verses, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Look down at verses 15 through 17 of chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Now look at chapter 16, verses 22 through 23. Chapter 16, verses 22 through 23. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. All right, so we see uh, command, love one another. We see comfort, I will send the Holy Spirit, I will send you joy, I will come to you again. And then lastly, we have the commission. Uh, back in chapter 14, verse 12, before we get to our passage tonight, Jesus says in chapter 14, verse 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus is telling his disciples here, as I'm leaving, love one another. That's my commandment to you. As I'm leaving, do not be sorrowful. I will send you the Holy Spirit, another helper. He will give you joy. He will give you peace. And you will see me again, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. In light of that, this is your commission. You will go, and you will do greater works than I will do. Now, ultimately, you see the purpose of that in John 17, verse 20. 
As Jesus prays for these disciples, these apostles, he says in John 17, verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying, I'm asking and I'm praying not just for these apostles, but for all those who will believe in me through their word. Guess who that includes? That includes you and me sitting here today who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ because of the words of these very apostles. Jesus was praying for them and he was praying for every single believer who would hear about him and believe on him through, through, through them. And so we see Jesus in these final words to his disciples give them a command, he gives them comfort, and he gives them a commission. And in the middle of that, then, we have that promise. To these men, if you will ask anything in my name, I will do it. In fact, if you look at chapter 16, again, verses 23 through 24, you'll notice he said the same thing. Chapter 16, verse 23, And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask in my, my Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now you have not asked anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. First and foremost in our interpretation, these words were specifically spoken to these men, the apostles. The setting, the upper room. The final moments of Christ, the final words of Christ. To who? To these men, the apostles. And he tells them, you will do greater works than I have done. Not greater in their significance. Certainly not greater in their importance because Jesus dies for our sins and they don't. Greater in number. You will do more than this. Many more will come to faith through your words and through your miracles than came to faith through Jesus. You know, Jesus' converts were relatively few, and intentionally so. But the converts of the apostles, I mean, 3,000 in one day on the day of Pentecost, that's more than Jesus saw in his whole ministry. And he tells them, you're going to do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what God's will is for you. And we see that unfold there in the book of Acts. When you turn to the book of Acts, you see these very men, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, according to the power and the authority of Jesus, doing these very things. So when Jesus tells them, in my name, he means by his power and his authority. We're not going to have time to turn to these passages, but just to remind you, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls and they're preaching the gospel, Peter stands up and he's preaching the gospel. He says, this Jesus God has raised from the dead. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, verse 6, he tell, Peter tells the lame man there in the temple, get up and walk, remember, in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 16, he reiterates, what you see today, he says to the people in the temple, is by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 4, verse 12, when Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and they question them, remember what they say? There is no other name given under heaven, given among men, whereby you must be saved, except what name? The name of Jesus Christ. And so when Jesus says, in my name, and we turn the page to the book of Acts, and what are the apostles doing except preaching and healing and ministering in Jesus' name? They're pointing people to the source 
of the power. They're pointing to the source of the power and they're identifying the source. It's Jesus, the one whom you crucified, the one who God raised from the dead, the one who you're persecuting right now. He's the one doing these things. It's by his power and his authority. It is in his name that we're doing these things. I think oftentimes when you hear that phrase, in Jesus' name, certainly the way the word of faith teachers use it is it's some sort of uh, magical incantation. Now you just say the magic words and the right combination of words and, and, you, and you'll get this uh, like a slot machine from God that if you just say the right things and believe the right way and say Jesus' name enough, then you have what you say. But that's not what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. Now, it's not obviously wrong to pray in Jesus' name. We pray in Jesus' name in our church services. I will pray tonight in Jesus' name as we close. But it's not just the mere mention of the words that does something magical in the air and turns on God's uh, power for us. It means that we're doing things according to his will and according to his purposes. That's what Jesus says here. God's people, with God's spirit, praying according to the will and the purpose and the power of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So, the apostles would be particularly anointed and sent in the name of Jesus with signs and wonders that pointed people to Jesus and his kingdom. That's what he's meaning in John 14. When you go into the world, I die, rise again, ascend, send the Holy Spirit, and you go preaching the gospel, ask anything in my name, the healing of a lame beggar, the raising of the dead, whatever it is, apostles, when you go, ask in my name, for my purposes, for my glory, and I will do it. And again, you might say, well, that's great for the apostles, that's great for the book of Acts, but what do I do with this? You know, I've always thought I pray in Jesus' name and I can get what I want or whatever it is. What do I do with this if it's not that? Well, there are principles for prayer here. There are principles for prayer here, but it's not if I just say in Jesus' name as some sort of incantation or formula that God is obligated to give me what I say. That's word of faith teaching. That if I say something and I have full faith and don't doubt and I invoke the name of Jesus, God is obligated to give me what I pray for. And they'll use words like decree and declare and claim because in their minds and in that warped theology, God has already given you your healing. You just need to believe enough to receive it. And you have to put enough faith in him and say in Jesus' name enough to receive that healing that's already yours. And oh, by the way, the backside of the word of faith teaching movement is if you don't get what you've prayed for, the problem is with you or with your faith. And guess how many people have run away from Christianity because of that warped thinking, that warped theology. Praying in Jesus' name means praying according to God's will in Christ. You don't believe me? 1 John chapter 5, same John the Apostle. This is what he says in 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. Do you see an important clarification there? If we ask anything according to his name, according to his will, he hears us and he will respond according to his will. So the important imperative for us here is to align yourself with God's will and God's mission and God's purpose in Christ. And as you align yourself with God's will and God's purpose and God's mission in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's what it means to ask in Jesus' name. It's not just the words we say with our mouth that just turn on the bank of heaven. It is the faith in which we approach God with doing his will, knowing his will, and serving his purposes in the world. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. And you might ask, well, how do I align myself in that way? Well, you can know God's will by reading God's word. That is how God's spirit speaks to you, through the reading, the hearing, the preaching of God's word. You can align yourself with God's will by going to church, by attending worship, by worshiping privately, through prayer, through study, growing in holiness, the ordinary means of grace that God gives us, his word, the water, the wine, the bread, these things that God gives us and says, here, use these to know me, to love me, to serve me, to grow in me. James says in his letter, you have not because you ask not. And even when you ask, James says, you ask with the wrong motives. You want to glorify yourself. Rather that you would pray to God, believing God to give you what you ask for according to his will so that you can glorify him. Ask God in order to glorify God. And there's the key to asking in Jesus' name and according to Jesus' will. As we align ourselves with God's will and purpose in Jesus, we will pray as God wills. We will pray for what God wills by the power of his spirit and the authority of the Son, Jesus Christ. I want to take just two minutes as we conclude this whole series to tell you again why this is important. It's important to rightly understand the Bible. I know that sounds like everybody in here agrees with that statement. Yes, I want to rightly understand the Bible. But how often do we buck against a verse or a passage or a teaching or a doctrine? How often do we find ourselves in resistance, not because God's word isn't clear, but if we're honest with ourselves, we look at what God's word teaches and we either want to use it for something that suits us or we just don't like what it says. And so instead of submitting ourselves to what God has said and applying it the way that he intended, we would rather take it and do what we want with it. I remind you that that is at its base level. I'm not saying we're all Satanists, but at its base level, it is satanic because it is twisting the scripture and using them in ways that God has not intended. The meaning of the text is the text. And so if we're to read the Bible and understand it rightly, we should bind ourselves to the text. 
That means binding our thoughts, our opinions, our feelings, our obedience. We should bind those to the text of Scripture. How often do we flip-flop that and we bind the Bible to our feelings? Or we bind the Bible to our thoughts and our opinions rather than the other way around? We should discern teachers and preachers and pastors and churches. We should be able to carefully listen to preaching and teaching on the radio, on TV, uh, on podcast, at church, in Sunday school. We should be able to listen to preaching and teaching and Bible teaching and, and discern if someone is taking something out of context or someone is twisting Scripture in a way that's not helpful, maybe unintentionally and maybe with good motives. And maybe they just need to be asked, hey, have you studied that passage much? Have you studied that verse right there? Doesn't it sit in this context? Doesn't it say this? We need to be discerning listeners and discerning um, takers in of good biblical preaching and teaching. And that's what I would say, listen to good preaching. At least listen to sound preaching, okay? If you don't think my preaching is good, I hope at least it's sound. (laughs) It's healthy biblical teaching. Find good podcasts. If you don't know who to listen to, you don't know who to trust, ask somebody. Ask me, Zane, Pastor Matt. Ask a, a Sunday school teacher. Who do you listen to? And then discern. Use your discernment. Uh, Stay away from teachers and preachers who abuse and twist God's word to suit their own doctrines or their churches or their style. When you're listening to preaching, be listening for those clues. Is this preacher putting this in context? Are they telling me what it meant then or are they just trying to apply it now? Listen for those things. And I will give you my promise as your pastor to do the best I can to study the text in its historical, literary context, so that when I preach and when I teach, what my aim will be is to do what we've done here, to take what it originally meant, explain that, and then apply it using the actual meaning of the text. Look for that in your preachers and your teachers and your pastors and any person you take in from the Word of God. Listen for that, and I want you to make your promise to me. If I promise to do that for you, what you will promise to do for me is to be good listeners of preaching and teaching. Bring your Bibles, open your Bibles, put it in the context as I'm reading or your Sunday school teacher is reading and teaching. Look at it. Look at the context. Look at the surrounding verses. Look at the surrounding chapters. Look at the headings. Look at the themes as we discuss those things together. I'll be a better preacher if you'll be a better listener. Deal? Not a shorter preacher, but a better preacher. Amen? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that teaches us, leads us into all truth. We ask that as we remain students of your word, you would, by your Holy Spirit, lead us into that truth. Preserve us from error. Help us not to twist the scriptures. Help us to always to submit our thoughts and our feelings and our opinions to you. You are the Lord of all. We submit our minds, our bodies, our hearts, and our wills to you tonight. By the authority, the teaching of your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.